Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Mark Ellison, an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. We're talking about the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University. And Dr. Ellison contributed a chapter called Connecting with Christ, Rituals and Worship. Mark, it's great to be here with you. Thanks so much, Blair. It's great to talk with you. And I've uh, long been an admirer of your work, your your podcasts, and just so many of the things you do. You are just such a great gift to our community. Wow. And so it's a, it, you can't edit this out, Blair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yes. but, but thank, thank you. you. It's, a, it's a privilege to talk with you. Yeah, see, for all the listeners out there, uh, yeah, go check out the other stuff. And see. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about this book, though. Your, your chapter's great, Connecting with Christ. And what about your background led to you being the one to write this chapter? Uh, my PhD is in early Christian history with special interest in the physical spaces and, and visual culture of early Christianity. And as part of my doctoral studies, one of my comprehensive exams was in the area of ritual and worship and the physical spaces of, of ritual and worship. And so it had long been an area of interest for me. And when the time came that this was one that I, I signed up for, I wanted to do this. Your chapter stood out to me because it's about practice. There's a lot of things in here about what Christians were doing. Like when someone asks me to tell them about my religion, I'll usually start by talking about things I believe. I believe these things. I don't start by saying, well, on Sunday I might do this or I don't say whatever. Right? We talk about things that we believe in. Your chapter is about worship, and you say that actions are actually a huge part of what religion is really about for people. Right, and that often happens in talking about ancient religions too. Is like, what did those people believe back then? Or uh, when the subject of ancient Christian comes up, what uh, Christians come up, what did they believe? And uh, yeah, religion's about more than just beliefs. So it's about practices, uh, ritual, worship ethics, behavior, all of those things express belief. And as I studied early Christian rituals and worship, I just saw over and over again, these were expressing the beliefs, the really deeply felt convictions of ancient Christians. And I, I found that over and over again, they were really beautiful. There's this ancient saying that goes, I think, back to the 7th century about lex arandi, lex credendi, the law of what is to be prayed is the law of what is to be believed. In other words, mm. like it's, it's prayers and rituals and what we do when we're together as Christians that embodies and articulates our faith. Hmm. You say that actions, including acts of worship, kind of reveal the essence of faith. I think that's a really strong theme of your chapter. Let's talk about the word ritual for a second, because Latter-day Saints aren't used to using that term. So let's unpack it a little bit. It, it might seem weird to someone to say, hey, baptism is a ritual that we do in my church, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about like a ceremony, a set of behaviors. There might be certain ways you stand or postures that you make or words that you say at key times. All of these are elements of ritual. Uh, rituals often take place in a certain setting that is appropriate for that ritual. And, and rituals are manifest across religious traditions. Um, looking at ancient Christian rituals as a way to really appreciate what was most important to ancient Christians. All right. Well, today, Latter-day Saints, we gather on Sundays. We take the sacrament. We hear talks. We have Sunday school classes. 
take us back to the first few hundred years after Jesus was resurrected. You know, today people say you can go anywhere in the world and have a similar experience to what you have in your home ward. Can we go back in time and have our similar ward experience back then? Oh, that would be fascinating. I, I actually start out my chapter in a way where I, I try to bring the the reader into imagining the setting of early Christian worship in the first century. As we read in the New Testament, we see that Christians were gathering together. They were doing things like uh, singing hymns together and psalms and spiritual songs. They were recounting stories about Jesus. Uh, they were prophesying together. And uh, visiting missionaries might stand up and give messages. They would pray together, and they would often have the Lord's Supper together, sometimes in the context of a common meal that everyone shared. So we might think of like a, a potluck dinner or linger mm. longer, but as part of that, they would take the bread and wine and remember that Jesus instituted this sacrament at the Last Supper, and they would re-experience it. And so they were like there at the Last Supper as if they were, or as if they were those disciples at the Last Supper, reconnecting with Christ. And you place it in the Jewish context. Christianity as a religion didn't just spring into existence. Uh, Jesus himself was Jewish, and there was a lot of Jewish elements. Talk about the Jewish roots of Christian worship, kind of where that there was that time when it was Christianity was still coming into its own, and it was still sort of part of Judaism. Right, and especially in the first century, the earliest Christians would have seen themselves as Jews, Jews who accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, mm-hmm. and originally they were still going to synagogue when the temple still stood. They were going to the temple. We can read in Acts chapter 21 uh, how the, the Christians in Jerusalem were continuing to be Torah observant and, and go to the temple. But after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, both Judaism and what was emerging as Christianity, the the Jesus movement, had to readjust. And like, how do we redefine our religious lives now that there's not a temple? That's the locus of our, our religious community. And so Christianity eventually... What became Christianity coalesced around house church congregations. There was a long, slow, gradual parting of the ways between what became early Judaism and what became early Christianity. And Christians were meeting in the homes of members and meeting together for these experiences of singing hymns and praying and having this uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper together. Because there was that time of transition, it seems like it would be difficult to to really get at it, like if you went back in time and went into a building, for example, or even just doing an archaeological dig today, you don't find some sort of utensil and like this is a Christian utensil and this would be a Jewish one, right? Was there – when you're looking at actual architecture, when you're looking at artifacts, how are scholars determining when this transition happened? What kind of tools are they using to find out more about Judaism and Christianity? Oh, yeah, that is such a fascinating question. And truth be told, uh, identifiable early Christian remains uh, don't surface in the material record until about the year 200 CE. Mm. Up until that time, there are Christians, of course, who, you know, they, they have material culture and they, they build houses and they meet in houses, but there's nothing that identifies them as distinctively Christian until around the year 200, and that's when uh, Christians have enough communal wealth to have real estate. They buy catacombs, uh, group cemeteries, Hmm. and then they start decorating them. And that's when um, the earliest identifiable Christian art and material culture really 
emerges. And before that, obviously, we have texts, right? So mm-hmm. what kind of things do scholars look for in the texts when they're looking for ideas about Christian ritual? Right. There's texts in the New Testament that just kind of glancingly describe uh, the activities of Christian worship. There's no like treatises devoted to exactly what Christian worship should be like until around the end of the first century, there's a text called the Didache. And uh, there are other texts in that tradition called church orders texts that lay out, okay, here's how you go about having what we now call the sacrament. And here's how you go about having a baptism. And here are the prayers you're supposed to pray. Here's the Lord's prayer. You should say it three times a day, the Didache Mm -hmm. says. And so the beginning of these church orders texts and liturgical text starts around the end of the first century, and we have those all through the early centuries. Mm, all right. Well, your chapter talks about some specific rituals. You talk about prayer, uh, song, baptism, the Eucharist or the sacrament. Was it hard to choose? Because there's a lot of different practices you could choose from. And your chapter, you know, these chapters aren't terribly long, so you had to narrow it down a little bit. It was hard to choose. And uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about everything, but there are book-length treatments of early Christian worship and uh, and rituals. Um, and so I decided to focus on those four because those defined the religious lives of almost all ancient Christians. And then there were other rituals that developed too, uh, rituals of pilgrimage and penance and the early forms of marriage liturgy. And these uh, developed gradually over the first four, five, six centuries and continue to develop into the medieval and early modern period. But I wanted to look at those four because those are ones also that we as Latter-day Saints can really connect with and think about in ways that could enrich our own worship experiences. Yeah, well, I mean, we still do pilgrimages in a way, though, true, right? Like, you go, people are going to go off to Nauvoo, or they're going to, like... <laughs> right, or Palmyra, the sacred right. grove. We want to yeah. connect with places that were holy. Right, and perhaps just not as in a dedicated as way, right? Like, these ancient pilgrimages could be very, very prescribed and, and really powerful experiences that I think Latter-day Saints today, we don't have that level of prescription about a pilgrimage. Right. Okay. This is the topic of our next book, Ancient Christians Part Two. And, yes, <laughs> and yes. I'll have a, another More chapter. pilgrimage. Yeah. Well let's start with prayer. All right. So as you said, like prayers are really a really powerful, important, common part of Christian experience. So what do you find with the early day saints and how prayer operated for them? One of the things that stands out to me uh, that really impressed me as I did a deep dive studying about what early Christians thought about prayer was how Christ-centered it was. Like the practice of saying the Lord's Prayer and saying it as a form to be recited each day, early Christians really thought about that, and they recognized that every line of the Lord's Prayer called to mind moments from Jesus's own life and ministry. And so when you prayed that prayer, you were sort of rehearsing the Gospels in miniature. And Mm. it was a chance to connect with Christ and think about Christ at the beginning of each day and sort of say once again, I am signing on to Jesus's message of the kingdom. I want to be a part of his work. And it was so Christ-centered. And that moved me because it caused me to reflect on how Christ-centered have my prayers really been? Mm-hmm. Have have they been a worship service that reconnects me with Christ at the beginning of each day? Yeah, growing up, I you know would think of set prayers kind of negatively, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. within our tradition, we have the sacrament prayers that get repeated. Um, but uh, you know, even as a missionary, I remember just kind of saying disparaging things about, well, people just recite these prayers, and it's, you know, we say prayers uh, from our heart kind of a thing. And your book really gives a different look at 
what a set prayer that you're reciting can do for someone that, that I think would give a lot, of pe- a lot of people more appreciation for that style of prayer. Right. I, that's what I hoped it would do is uh, I, I grew up with the same kind of attitudes and noticing uh, that I had often been sort of dismissive about yeah. rote prayers, and yet they can be really beautiful. And there's nothing about a rote prayer that has to be meaningless. I mean, the sacrament prayers, like you said, are are set prayers. And yet, if we really think about them, each line can be deeply meaningful in our own worship. So if I can just elaborate like on a personal level, yeah. there have been times in my life where I've really struggled in my prayer life, times when I just haven't known what to pray or how to pray, when my emotions or my needs are just so intense and I, or, or I'm going through such a difficult trial that I'm at a loss. I just don't know how to pray. And at times uh, I've been able at moments like that to, to just get started by reciting the lines of the Lord's prayer Mm. and maybe pausing after each one and using it as a basis for then going into my own words or just reciting it line by line and reconnecting with Christ, and then I'm in a position to elaborate. But it's been a real help to me. Um, a few years ago, President Nelson in General Conference recited the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. and he talked about how meaningful it is and that we Latter-day Saints ought to be thinking about the meanings of each line. And so uh, I appreciate that. And I found in my own deep dive into the Lord's Prayer that there is just so much meaning there. Another thing I really love is the plural pronouns, uh, Our Father, who art in heaven, Mm -hmm. give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive. Even praying in private, early Christians were mindful that they were one person among millions, all depending on God. And so this prayer aligned them with God and with their neighbors and encouraged them to think of those two great commandments. I see a parallel there with scripture study because it's like you can read the same passage of scripture, but at a different moment or a different time in your life, it can hit you very differently. And so I think the same could be said of maybe having a psalm that you pray in addition to whatever other prayers you do, or the Lord's Prayer, where, or the sacrament prayers do this, where depending on what's happening in your life at that time, it becomes a unique individual or communal sometimes prayer even though the words are there, right? Rather than just being mindless and just repeating stuff, which is how I thought of it, it can be a really engaging experience to repeat something and to experience it freshly in a new moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it can connect us with believers of the past who also repeated those same words. That's kind of wonderful, you know, to think people for thousands of years who love Jesus have been praying these exact words. There's a reason for that. Yeah, when, when our Father who art in heaven, not not just the, the community of saints today, but it's literally this cloud of witnesses that, that's uh. been going for centuries, right? And you're they're part of that hour. The other thing I really liked in this section was the lamp lighting at the close of the day. Um, introduce people to that a little bit. Yeah, there was um, this was across religious traditions in the ancient world. You know, people would light little clay oil lamps to illuminate their homes at night. And this became a ritual in pagan households and Jewish households and Christian households, uh, a ritual of lighting lamps. In some traditions, and we see this still today in Judaism, it is a woman's duty to light the lamps at night uh, or to light the candles, uh, the Sabbath candles. Uh, And it's just a really beautiful tradition that developed into an early Christian tradition of saying prayers at night 
night at, on the occasion of lighting the lamps and praying that now that the light of day has ended, that God will watch over us during the night and that the light will return in the morning. And it was just a, a conscious way by which early Christians organized their lives and each day and the hours of each day around remembrance of Christ. And for me, who I'm really interested in early Christian material culture. And so to look at oil lamps yeah. and the decoration on oil lamps is just really interesting. So many oil lamps from late antiquity are inscribed with inscriptions that say like Christ is the light of the world or that have a chi and a row, the first two letters in Christ uh, decorating the top of the lamp. And so early Christians who light this lamp might remember Christ is the light of the world. And it's, uh, it's just a really beautiful tradition. It, it reminds me of something I love about camping, which is that I'm out in the middle of nowhere and I don't have access to electricity and I, I can't just make the daylight extend into the night. Like the sun goes down and I have a flashlight or start a campfire, but that's kind of it. And it, and there really is an intimacy and a sacredness to that experience that I think people in the ancient world experience daily. Uh, and this was life. It, it's really kind of, it's kind of hard to get into that headspace after the industrial revolution and the invention of electricity and all that, where we don't, we don't experience that same level of intimacy with the rhythms of day and night. Mm. And, and to have something at the end, a ritual at the end of a day, as the light is going out to remember Jesus as the light, it's, it's, a, it's just a really beautiful thing. And you've got some beautiful images in the book that, that depict it. Yeah, I love this ceremony of the Holy Fire that still takes place in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem um, at the Easter Vigil each year, where a light is brought from the tomb of Christ and then is extended to person after person in this congregation. And everyone is holding candles or lamps and this is a ceremony that goes way back to antiquity. Our early pilgrims in the 4th century talk about this and just how after uh, the light is passed from person to person, the whole church is filled with light and it looks like a constellation of stars. And it's such a beautiful image of the combined faith and the combined prayers of the whole Christian community. And how the light passes. Like I, My, my partner and I will attend... Pascha, the the Orthodox Easter tradition sometimes. Uh, and at midnight, everything's dark. You go, everyone goes and circles the, the church building, and then we all go inside upstairs, and it's all dark. And you can hear song. You can hear kind of a lament, you know, Jesus, it's, this was when Jesus is in the grave, right? And then a priest comes out with a candle, and we're all holding candles. This priest comes out and begin and lights a candle at the front of the room and then everyone begins passing the light across and over the span of a few minutes the whole sanctuary just lights up like day and 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 it's because you've handed this light to the person next to you it's it's one of the most beautiful rituals i've ever participated in yeah, that's that's beautiful, and that goes way back to antiquity. Yeah. This was something, and it's it like feels you say, like it too. Yeah, and and it's like you say, it's something that um, in our modern world we're sort of detached from yeah. because we have electricity and electric lights all around us. But it was something ancient people were very in tune yeah. with. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about baptism. Was baptism as a ritual a new thing when John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, or was he doing something new with it? What about baptism in its sort of right at that? 
when Christianity itself was sort of appearing on the scene, John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in Second Temple Judaism, there were the practices of ritual immersion for ritual purity, but John the Baptist is doing something a little different and innovative. He's doing a baptism of repentance, and it's not something where you immerse yourself as you would if you were a Jewish person immersing yourself in a mikvah, but he's guiding the baptism and performing it. And it's this baptism of repentance as part of a uh, Reformation movement to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, there was messianic expectation and expectations of a new age, and this is what John the Baptist is doing. Mm. And then early Christian baptism builds upon that, and it too is an immersion baptism in a body of water guided by a person, a ritual specialist who's doing this baptizing. But it's also to express faith in Christ, to join the church, to symbolize spiritual rebirth. You go down into the water and your past life is laid behind you. It's a kind of death, and then you rise to a newness of life. And so New Testament authors viewed Christian baptism as a, a very rich ritual, uh, rich with symbolic meanings. I like thinking about the the many different meanings it can have. When I go to baptisms today, it's usually a pretty simple, they'll give a talk about baptism, and it's usually about like it washes your sins away, and then and then you start fresh, and then you get the Holy Ghost. But, you know, when we're looking at the texts, when we're looking at what early-day saints were doing, when we look at what the Book of Mormon describes, we see baptism become a much bigger thing than just washing away sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite works of art in early Christian art is, uh, it's actually the earliest baptistry that's ever been discovered, and it was built uh, around the 240s in Dura Europis in Syria. And right over the baptismal font, there was a painting of the Good Shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulders and carrying it to a flock that is drinking at the water's edge mm. there. And so there's this painting right above where Christians are getting baptized, and it symbolizes this is what baptism means. It means you're being rescued by the Good Shepherd. Uh, you are forming this vertical relationship between you and Christ, and also he is carrying you into the fold of the church. And so you're forming this horizontal relationship, too, with fellow Christians, and you're joining the fold, and you're being brought to the water's edge, this place where you can partake of living water, the water of the Spirit. It's so rich, and uh, early Christians were thinking deeply about what their baptisms meant. Mm. Are there things about the early day saints, the early Christian baptisms that would surprise Latter day Saints to learn about? Yeah, there, the baptism ritual developed over the early centuries. In the the first century, in the New Testament era, it was a pretty simple, straightforward ritual. It could happen anywhere. You go to where there's a body of water, a river, or like the Jordan River. And you could be baptized there. But by the third century, baptism has developed into a ritual with certain parts. And this continues to develop in the fourth century. There's usually a period of instruction, careful instruction beforehand that could last a year or longer. The favored time to get baptized was at Easter, the night before Easter, mm. because then there's this beautiful alignment of sacred time. The same time that Jesus is in the tomb, you are going down into the water. And then when Jesus rises on Easter morning, you are coming up out of the water. And mm. and so it just heightens that symbolism of rebirth with Christ, like Paul talks about at the beginning of Romans. 
early Christians, they would disrobe before baptism. They would be anointed with oil. They would kneel in the font and be guided down into a three-part immersion in the water, confessing faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then they would they might be anointed again after baptism. They would be clothed in a white robe, and then they would carry either lit candles or oil lamps and have a procession and join the rest of the waiting congregation to have the Eucharist for the first time on uh, Easter morning as the sun was coming up. Hmm. As Latter-day Saints listen to that, they might be surprised to hear things about like anointing and and clothing with a robe and stuff. And your chapter points out that some Latter-day Saint scholars even have written about some of these parallels between ancient Christian rituals and contemporary practices like temple ordinances. But you also say that Latter-day Saints have reasons to be cautious about that. Yeah, I think we do need to be cautious about that because the Doctrine and Covenants strongly implies that, well, it, it, it comes right out and states that yeah. Some, yeah, some things were never revealed before, before but were yeah. held for the dispensation of the fullness of times, and it strongly implies that temple ordinances are among those things. At the same time, in Latter-day Saint discourse, we are in the custom of saying these ordinances, these temple ordinances, are ancient. And I think there's good reason to think that what what we might do is just hold on to that ancient loosely and say yeah like the fact of rituals right, is ancient like right the, yeah. and certain elements sure. that we can find in antiquity but the exact form of the latter-day saint temple endowment of course has changed over our history and just in recent weeks right. there have been new changes announced and so we don't want to be overly rigid about that also some scholars who have postulated like uh, the current LDS Temple Endowment is uh, a restoration of something that, in its identical form, was had in antiquity. Have been accused of overreaching yeah. and parallelomania and like selecting certain details out of context. We want to be careful, responsible historical scholars, and you know understand what ancient rituals were on their own terms. But then we can think about our own experience of ritual and let that sort of inform us. And it can be really, really helpful, I think. Yeah, I appreciated how your chapter and other chapters in the book say we should expect to see some differences and not to see differences and just dismiss them or, or chalk them up to like apostasy or being wrong. You're suggesting a more charitable approach to ask what these early day saints were seeking to do. Like, what were they doing with those actions? And we can even find some common ground, unexpected common ground. Mm-hmm. I think so. All right. Well, before we go, I wanted to talk about the Eucharist, what Latter-day Saints call the sacrament or the Lord's Supper. And your chapter talks about the development of that over time. And I want to focus particularly on how your research about ancient Christian approaches has enriched your own faith. So talk about the Isaiah passage. Yeah, the practice of what we call the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament or the Eucharist, it developed over the centuries too. It initially was a simple observance of having the bread and wine with some Eucharistic prayers said over them, sometimes in the context of a common meal. And then by the second century, we start to see that separating from a common meal, and and it's the high point at the end of a service that involves prayers and hymn singing and reading from Scripture. And then in the fourth century, the ritual develops even more and is now held in, in basilical churches, and it has a more formal ritual element to it. And again, that sacrament, the, the bread and the wine, is the high point at the end of the ceremony that that symbolizes communion with deity. And one thing that became interesting to me is I was in grad school is how 
the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 got brought into the Eucharistic uh, liturgy and talking about the Eucharist and thinking about it. And I started noticing this in visual art, that there were liturgical elements like liturgical fans and things decorated with the six-winged seraphs from Isaiah chapter 6. And I was puzzled. Why why that imagery? Right. And uh, I, I came to realize, okay, well, the seraphs surround the throne of God, and here at the church altar, this is where the sacred bread and the wine would be. This is sort of the throne of God, and uh, deacons would hold these, these liturgical fans, symbolizing that this is the throne of God, and they sort of stood in for these seraphs. And uh, I started to wonder why this imagery would have been so attractive to ancient saints and uh, like the the vision in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the throne of God. He feels so overcome by that vision. He feels his unworthiness. He says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. And then the seraph takes a coal from the altar and flies to him and touches the coal to his lips. And he says, this has touched your iniquity, your sin is purged. And right after that, the voice of the Lord says, who shall we send? And Isaiah is transformed. A minute ago, Mm. he was like, oh, I'm unworthy to be here. And now he's volunteering. I'll go, send me. Here am I, send me. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Were early Christians thinking of their sacrament meeting worship as something like that, that where the, the Eucharistic bread and wine touches their lips and purges their sin and cleanses them and renews them. And now they're sent forth from that meaning to meeting to uh, bear witness of God's word to the world. And I just had that idea in mind. And then I went looking and I found in texts right from the, the earliest period forward that yes, indeed, wow. Christians were thinking about that. Like in the fourth century, Ephraim the Syrian talked about this bread has touched your lips, like the coal of Isaiah, yeah. and it transforms you. And um, there's, uh, I, I, I need to really work that out and publish it in a good academic yeah. publication. Someday. I've never heard about it before it's, until I read your chapter. Yeah, it's and it's a very much a part of Eastern Orthodox worship, but in the West, uh, not so, yeah. uh, not so emphasized. But it's a beautiful thing, and I found that for me. Uh, it's transformed my own experience of sacrament meeting. It, I will sit in my very ordinary Latter-day Saint meeting house, and sometimes I'm coming to the, the meeting that day feeling like Isaiah, like just overwhelmed and undone and in such spiritual need and lacking, uh, and I need God's renewing influence, His touch. And when I take that sacramental bread, sometimes one of the scriptures I'll think about is that verse in Isaiah 6, this has touched your lips, and uh, this has purged your sin, and and I'll think about the things God wants me to do, and I just feel led to say in my heart once again, here am I, Lord, send me. I'm willing to go forward now, and I I really feel renewed uh, by that. I'm really grateful for this beautiful ancient Christian tradition that saw sacrament meeting, the, the Eucharist, as a time of renewal and transformation and cleansing all over again. I need that every week. It is. It's really beautiful, Mark. And I'm really grateful that we have scholars that are looking and looking at these ancient Christians and bringing their witness back to our awareness. I wouldn't have encountered this without scholars doing this kind of work. And I think it could be really valuable for our, for our worship and for our experience of ritual to learn more about these ancient saints. And I think your chapter does that really well. well thank you so much.
Yeah, you bet. That's Mark Ellison, Associate Professor of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. He earned his bachelor's and master's at BYU, and then a master's in religious studies from the University of Southern Florida, and then a master's and a PhD in early Christianity and early Christian art from Vanderbilt University. That's a lot of degrees, Mark. Yeah, I went to school for a thousand years. (laughs) (laughs) This This has been great to sit down with you, Mark. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much, Blair. I appreciate your interest and all that you do, and uh, it's a joy to talk about these things with you. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.